The design of our built environment is one of the key opportunities for Australia to improve our sustainability as we move towards net zero. Not only within our homes, but also our offices, retail stores, warehouses, and of course, government buildings. So how do we make sure all of our buildings are on the same path to a renewable energy future? I'm Phil Bourne, and this is What's Next, a podcast from Energy Consumers Australia that explores new connections for a people-powered energy transition. Today on the show, Energy Consumers Australia's Director Energy Inclusion, Kerry Connors, speaks with Davina Rooney, CEO of the Green Building Council of Australia, a non-profit that helps businesses rate the sustainability of their offices and fit-outs, which administers the Green Star rating system. Thank you for joining our podcast. A good place to start is just to ask about who is the Green Building Council of Australia, um, you know, what you do and why you do it. Amazing. So the Green Building Council of Australia is a not-for-profit that's established to work with partners to drive the sustainable transformation of the built environment. Now, the way we do that is we do four important things. We rate, we run a Green Star rating system which actually is a mark of quality in the built environment. Am I moving into a beautiful new office building? What's its sustainability look like? You can tell from its green star rating. We advocate. So we work with government to drive critical changes that impact the lives of all Australians. We educate. We do our own conferences. We do training courses. We participate in beautiful podcasts like this. And we collaborate. Importantly, we work with over 650 members, people like big owners, developers, constructors, contractors, consultants, people that make building products, government, everyone who comes together to make up buildings in the built environment, we work with them to drive change. So Energy Consumers Australia, we've been really active in this space because energy inefficient homes have really poor outcomes for consumers. Um, Homes that leak hot air in winter and cool air in summer means people have to chew through kilowatts to keep their homes comfortable um, and so generate much higher power bills. Um, The research we've done also makes really clear the link between high uh, energy inefficiency and health. So it's a, a very stark barrier to affordable and healthy homes. Absolutely. And, I mean, the challenge of this, everything you've said is true, and it disproportionately impacts the most vulnerable Australians, many of whom spend a lot of time at home. You know, so the study that breaks my heart is um, a study was done in a Victorian hospital. 87% of people that presented with hyperthermia from the elderly were found at home. And, you know, homes where the heart is, homes where we're meant to be safe, homes where we live and dream, And that's constrained by the terribly inefficient houses that we have in Australia. You know, they're called glorified tents by several learned academics, which, you know, isn't a great statement. And they're they're worse than most other countries in the OECD. So we're like, we're coming from a position where we're a country that, you know, hasn't actually prioritised this. And there's a huge opportunity. No, there absolutely is. And I noticed that the Green Building Council's um, current strategy has a focus on homes. So why did you choose homes rather than commercial buildings as a priority? Absolutely. So residentials, 
where we need to make a huge amount of the change. So when we look at the emissions from the built environment, 57% of those comes from homes. And we're not doing well. On the commercial side, you know, our leading property partners win international awards, Dow Jones Sustainability Index leader, global real estate um, sustainable buildings. Since inception, they've been right at the very top. And then there's this enormous gap, I'd call it a chasm, to what we accept in residential homes. You'll hear it from people you talk to, people who've lived in Europe. The coldest and most uncomfortable they've ever been is in an Australian house. And that's not a great promise to future generations, particularly when we know how to fix these things, particularly when it's cost effective to do so. Why wouldn't we want better for all Australians? So as the Green Building Council, we spend lots of time across multiple parts of the sector, but this is one of the key parts that needs change. The code changes we're having now are the first in over 12 years. While the rest of the world's been moving hard and fast in this space, there's a huge opportunity for better. That's so well said, Davina. I couldn't agree more. In then uh, thinking about what makes a good home, um, the council's done a lot of work in defining what good looks like um, and through your Green Star rating system. Can you tell us about the Green Star rating system and what are the characteristics of a Green Star home? Fantastic. When all the research we did with consumers and it's been done across industry shows people want a home that's healthier for their family, they want something that's, you know, net zero, energy efficient, saves them lots of money on bills, and they want something that walks more lightly on the planet and um, is going to be there tomorrow with the horror bushfires we've seen, resilience, designed for future climates is a big focus. So when we designed um, Green Star Homes, which is actually a standard to work with builders and developers to drive better at scale, Now, why work with the big end of town? Well, the first thing is I'll know that I've got the change that we need when I start seeing double glazed windows at Bunnings. (laughs) What do we need for that to happen? We need to move the big and the medium end of town so that when someone goes in to buy a new house, there's a really great standard of better available for them and it's mainstream enough to be available in the shops for everybody. So we sought to take those characteristics and say, what does that look like in a new home? And really excitingly, we're going to be putting out a renovations guide so that we can meet Australians where they are. But just to unpack that a little bit, what what does it mean on the healthy side? For us, that's about, you know, low toxins, finishes and finishes, fixtures and finishes. So low VOC carpets, paints, that kind of thing. Ventilation that's suitable for a home, things like access to daylight, um, all electric. So a big health focus on, um, you know, the latest Stanford studies are frighteningly showing us that gas in homes is as dangerous um, for children with asthma as passive smoking. The Asthma Foundation's out talking about that. So that's like a healthy pillar Positive side, um, you know, we want to have a positive contribution, highly efficient buildings powered by renewables that are fully electric is a huge focus. And on the resilience side, it's about light-coloured roofs and drought-resistant plants and having things designed so that they fare better in storms. So in some ways it kind of feels back to the future when you talk about this space because the kind of materials people want in their homes that are designed for the future climate and aligned with our future grid kind of sounds like common sense to me. 
Are those homes much different from the homes we're building now? Sadly, yes. Yes. So um, when when we work with partners on how we drive this at change, we need to incentivise them. Uh, so we're working with leading banks like CBA, NAB, and offering a discount on home loans for a better loan. And the aim of this is we'd like people to have better. A study we've done with KPMG suggests that people can save eight years on their mortgage. You know, so you take those you pay a little more up front, then you take the cost savings, put it back in your mortgage. And if you get a lower rate through your mortgage as well, what a huge difference. So I know the council's been playing a really important role in helping decision makers understand what good looks like, um, not just in the standards we should be setting, but also how they can be measuring that we're actually achieving those standards. I'm just interested if you could tell us a bit more about the work you're doing with some of those external decision makers or other sectors to help communicate good practice? So we've got two big areas that we're working on here. One is building new homes and the other is the existing homes and apartments that we all live in today. Now it is wild. I know more about the energy efficiency of my refrigerator than I know about the most expensive asset I'll ever own, my house. And so we've been doing a lot of work with partners like the Property Council calling for clearer disclosure. Now, excitingly, earlier this year when we launched a net zero plan for the built environment with Senator McAllister and our partners in property, the Treasurer's Roundtable responded and said there will be a disclosure metric for all homes for 2025. But it just existing kind of isn't enough. In developed economies and economies that are doing really well in this space, you find out every time you buy or lease a home what it looks like. And for your national audience, that is available in ACT right now. And what we see both internationally and in the ACT is these homes are worth more and people want to rent them at higher rates, which, you know, There's studies from the Bank of England showing this. We even hear from Domain when people talk more about efficiency in listings and are able to show the efficient features, they have a double digit improvement in return. So what's great is there's now studies that tell us the bleeding obvious that if you have a home that's cheaper to run and more comfortable, that we'll see um, that. However, we need to drive this so this is available to everyone. So that's on the existing side. We need to have a benchmark for better Um, that's nationally consistent, really clear. We can't have different ones in different states because that's really confusing. And the whole aim of this is it to be as clear as what's on the front of your fridge or washing machine. And on the other side, when we're building new stuff, it needs to be better. And it needs to be set up for the future climate and it needs to be set up for the current climate and it needs to value the cost that we all spend and waste on energy and it needs to actually focus on people being comfortable in their homes. So the research that we did in partnership with Renew um, began by asking people what they thought about the energy efficiency of their home, you know, what when they hear that term, what they think about. And people were able to very clearly describe what an energy efficient home looks like. You know, it's warm, it's comfortable, it's airy, it's light. You know, they like being there. It has some green space. It has the right shading. Um, 
it's fit for purpose. It suits their lifestyles. Um, and it, they also assumed that, you know, their house wasn't energy efficient and they also thought that probably hardly any Australian houses were energy efficient, which is sadly kind of true. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's great to hear about the work that you're doing. I'm just curious now what kind of um, response you're seeing then from that work and, and how you, whether you're hearing different attitudes from about retrofitting depending on who the owner is, whether it's an owner or a landlord or an investor. The split incentive, the big challenge we have within property is, um, and we see this in all research, more owner-occupied houses have insulation in them than renter properties. This is a big problem. What's exciting is um, in different jurisdictions like Victoria, like ACT, we're starting to see minimum rental standards. We need to focus in this area. There shouldn't be as big a divide as there is. And in an affordability crisis, not having these standards, again, reinforces and risks that the most vulnerable suffer. Now, I myself also um, sit on Evolve Housing, which is... Um, a community housing provider that works with vulnerable Australians. And it's really, it's always critical we get it right, but it's even more critical in these spaces. So we really need to have a safety net. So when we talk about ideas in this space, our aim is that we do research in, you know, some of our own standards um, like Green Star Homes. And the aim is that we lift the voluntary market up to make space for critical regulation that comes underneath it. Because we do need to have exemplars of how these things work. If someone's, when we worked with the Victorian government and they launched electrification, they walked into an all electric home. We had a fabulous um, celebrity chef who loves, you know, Victor Lung, who loves cooking on induction. And we spoke to a resident about why their life was better in this new context. We can't dream policy up in a vacuum. We need to be looking at the best of practice and looking at what we can sensibly scale to be available for everyone that's in the right price point. I think it's, it's and the example you gave there's a really important one because it's also helping people envision that future. So mm. actually understanding that, yeah, you can actually cook with a wok on an induction cooktop that, you know, you're not necessarily losing amenity or comfort or any of the things uh, that you value at the moment through that transition. Um, the idea of uh, using um, demonstration homes, model homes, the road shows that we saw when we rolled out gas, we need to repeat those about rolling out, re-rolling out electricity. People want to aspire to better and when we partnered and we were a founding member of the Cook Safe Coalition, where Neil Perry came out and said the cooking's better, Polissa Anderson said chat Thai is going that way, and, you know, arguably the top restaurant in the world, La Doyenne, out of France, you know, more hats than I can count, um, talked about this is, this is the technology of the future. And so I think what's really interesting for people like me is I learn things, you know, in flame grilled, you move the wok in the flame. In induction, you move the food in the wok. You know, so 
but they're things that we have to learn. But in a climate crisis, in a biodiversity crisis, in an affordability crisis, if we think we're just going to do the same thing, that's a mistake. And Australia is the home of great ideas. We should be leaning into that. And we're absolutely delighted with the work that yourself and Renew are doing, having a public discussion in this space. People don't want to hear two engineers argue the flip of a coin or the, the critical detailed work that we often do in the engine room of standards. That doesn't have the same resonance to everyone as hearing groups talk about how this leads to better outcomes for everybody and how lives will change. You're listening to What's Next for Energy Consumers Australia and now we're going to take a little pit stop from the main conversation to talk about Energy Consumers Australia's grants program. A sometimes forgotten group when it comes to household energy efficiency are renters as they often don't have the agency to make home improvements. Landlords are the final decision maker regarding most actionable energy efficiency measures and this power imbalance is why Better Renting and Joel Dignam is seeking to better understand household winter temperatures in rental homes. Rental researchers, it's a citizen science project. We recruit citizen renters across the country and we send them a temperature tracker, which allows them to track temperature and humidity uh, in a point in their home, not just at one point in time, but over an entire season. We went to Canberra to speak to Caitlin to find out what energy efficiency measures she's taking at home and how temperature is impacting her family's health. In this house, you'll notice that there's blankets dotted all over the place. We're constantly wearing our dressing gowns and warm clothing from about April till October. We take care to zone all the spaces and so just heat the spaces that we're in as well. The average temperature of our home in winter was about 16 degrees. In terms of our family's health and well-being. I notice a definite change in mood in the in the colder weathers. Also, myself and, and two of the kids have asthma as well. And so we notice a, an exacerbation of, of the symptoms in the colder weather too. I think that landlords should be providing shading, providing efficient heating, um, sealing up gaps. So all those small things that can make a huge impact to how livable and comfortable the homes that they are supplying are. As a renter, we don't have the power or control to be able to do things ourselves. Joel Dignam shared some of the key insights from the research. I'm still really surprised by just how cold it gets out there for so many people for so much of the time. And I think sometimes when we think about uh, cold in particular, we think about a small number of really cold days or a minority of, of very cold homes. But the bigger issue is actually all the days that are sitting about 15, 16 degrees and the very, very large number of rental homes that are probably sitting just below 18 degrees for, for almost the entire time. And that is something that's really hard to avoid as a renter. The other dimension to this uh, is just the cost of living impacts. People have to spend so much money just trying to stay warm through winter. Uh, and when you also have your rent going up, petrol costing more, groceries costing more, uh, it, it puts people under huge strain. Joel then spoke about the aim of the project and how the grants program is supporting the work. So what we really want to be doing with this research is supporting the participants, the renters who've been part of it, to uh, take action themselves and to make sure that their voices are part of the conversation. Energy Consumers Australia's grant program uh, has been really useful for better renting. 
Things like rent researchers depend so much upon the ideas coming from our partners, uh, their help with recruitment, but also just knowing that we'll be able to keep doing this work over time. And that's where the support's been really valuable. That was Joel Dignam from Better Renting. And now we're going to jump back into the main conversation with Davina Rooney and Kerry Connors. We do have a target of net zero by 2050, and that means that um, we are going to have to do more to make our homes and our commercial buildings more energy efficient. There has been a lot of progress. There's still an awful lot to be done. So just um, interested in how you think we're progressing towards that target. Well, I'm one of life's optimists. I think you have to be um, in roles like mine. Um, Yeah, we have a 2050 target, but let's be clear, buildings should go first. We should be seeing buildings be net zero in operation by 2030 if we've got any chance to hit our global goals. So what, what does that mean? That means a grid with a heck of a lot more renewables in it. We need buildings to be more efficient, otherwise we're going to have to build a whole new grid for electric vehicles. And it's a lot smarter optimising what you have rather than building a new one, let alone how inconvenient that is. And so I'm optimistic. The steps we're taking right now in Australia are all steps in the right direction. Look, it's a little bit like my son and his homework. He starts term projects. I wish we'd do them at the start of the term. I wish we'd do them halfway through the term. Somehow or other than, you know, the last night, he and I spend quite a lot of time putting them together. It feels a little bit that way with Australian property and energy and building policy. So all the work we're doing now, it would have been really great to do it 20 years ago and we could have done slower transitions. But like my son and his term project, we didn't. So here we are. And so I think, you know, we're going to have to strap in for what I call the disorderly decade where we do all of our homework that we should have done over the last 20 years and we're going to do it a little bit all at once. And what that means is we're going to see ACT Victorian gas bans in some parts of the sector done slightly differently to New South Wales electrification in big buildings and the code's going to be moving sometimes ahead, sometimes behind And for those of us deep in sector, we're going to find it all a bit of a jumble and that's the technical term. But this is what happens when you don't, you know, our partners in Germany have been pushing efficiency standards since the late 70s that go through heaps of mortgages and really sensible, long staged out programs, long disclosure. We didn't do our homework in some of those ways. So we're going to be pretty busy right now but it's still better to do your homework late than never and noting what we have coming for us. We're already over 1.1 degrees. July figures, early calls from some scientists are that we're in 1.5 degrees in some locations. Um, Now is the time. I mean, it's a great analogy there about, you know, we're, we're rushing with our homework. Um, being the student that's staying up all night to get the job done rather than have done it in a measured way. There's a benefit of my son doing his homework at the last minute and we are actually seeing some of this in Australian property policy. So, you know, to give my 11-year-old some credit, when we sometimes do things at the last minute, we take some of our early ideas and doing it all together, we discover that we can do it slightly differently or slightly better. You know, we call this the last mover advantage 
in some cases, you know, um, doing this in certain areas, the work that the ACT government did has inspired the Victorian government. What New South Wales is doing, they're leading on um, embodied carbon, the, the carbon in materials. What we're seeing is different pockets of excellence pop up. And that means that, you know, when we do our homework as a nation, we can be inspired by great, let's call them jurisdictional pilots, um, because we can actually use what's come before us. Although it wasn't tidy, we can use those ideas and pull it together and leapfrog. So the New South Wales work in materials is world leading. Mm -hmm. The Victorian and ACT electrification is world leading. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about the work in Germany. That's actually for gas heating only. Yeah. It's not for all electrification of the homes. So if you come from behind, sometimes you can leapfrog and like my son, have a brilliant night where you actually change where you were substantively. So I think we need to go into this with hope and optimism. And if we do sensible, coherent reviews, and some of the policy programs in Australia, particularly on the commercial building side, the disclosure are some of the most effective in the world. So that's what this opportunity is to take this time, actually look at it and, and play catch up really quick. Do you think we have the mechanisms in place to share good practice easily across the country? What I find to be exciting is the world's never been smaller. Last week, we had one of the leading um, German bureaucrats who works in the business of government driving this change in all these areas, sitting with a bunch of local policymakers and all of us talking about what works, what doesn't work in different jurisdictions. I, I sit on policy call with my colleagues from federal government, lots of different states. I see more collaboration in the last, you know, five months than I've mm -hmm. seen in the last 15 years. So I think actually the fact that that clock is ticking and we're running out of time to do really long consultations to nowhere is driving a new collaboration. Uh, the area that I would actually call out would be infrastructure. We're seeing all the different transport areas work together in ways we haven't seen before to actually scale some of this work up. So I would say in a perfect world, I'd love to be ahead of where we are. But in the world we're in, I think we're facing into it in a pretty good attitude, in a pretty good way. Oh, that's comforting to hear or reassuring to hear. I think, um, I mean, the work we've been doing with you and others in this coalition uh, makes very, has made very clear that, you know, to, to get to where we need to get to um, needs the involvement of all levels of government, needs to be at the federal level, at the local and, and the local council level. Um, states and territories have to be involved uh, as well as across industry portfolios and industry sectors. Just interested to hear your perspective on how those different decision makers are coming together, but maybe where they could be coming together a bit better as well. So if we're going to change everything, we're going to need everyone. So I think noting that all, all stakeholders. Now look, on a property policy side, I must say, um, I'm sometimes jealous. We caught up with the Singaporean government who says, it's so confusing in Australia. You know, you're talking about federal, state and local. We are the federal government. We are the state government. We are the local government. Now, 
that brings together a simplicity, um, very different policy environment to here. In Australia, it's more of a patch quilt where federal mechanisms like the federal code, the Australian Building Code, are designed at a federal level, then adopted by states, and different planning is done at a state level, and then different councils or approval mechanisms with their own flavour often added. So there's three different levels. You know, it's politely called a patch quilt. Um, but I think when we when we look at the opportunity space, it actually means that we do need to be engaging across multiple levels. So um, when we when we look at residential efficiency and we look at national standards, some of the things that we've been talking about, they're generally at a federal level then adopted by states. But I think it's interesting to look at a couple of different areas where there've been leading lights in other space. So, so for example, with councils, we often see leading pilot work from councils. Mm-hmm. So the net zero planning standards um, from City of Sydney are then being rolled up and adopted for large buildings by New South Wales government. And we're looking at how we roll that out nationally. So that's the idea of, and we see this in lots of great councils across the nation where they're piloting different ideas and often incubators of excellence. But I think the other uh, thing that you look at that we've got to focus on, and it's really hard, but we need to focus on it, is resilience when things go wrong. Yeah. So a lot of the federal standards control, say, a building themselves, but we don't want a resilient building. We want a resilient community and all the infrastructure that wraps around it, which is often controlled at a state level, and the first responders are often at a council level. So it's a beautiful tapestry but we've actually got to work collectively together to make sure like, we like the tapestry pattern that we're all sewing together. No, that's, again, a nice analogy because I think there is a need to be able to have that tapestry in a coherent enough picture to be able to tell people why this is important, why they need to change um, you know, why we're asking them to take action or think about their homes or their energy habits differently. That sort of takes us to the, what I, I don't know if it is the biggest task, we certainly see it as a giant task, which is that we have millions of homes in Australia that aren't um, energy efficient. Um, most homes built before 2003 were built to a very low rating. Uh, so we have a, to, to get them to, the standards that we have in new homes now is a big job um, and one that is going to ask people to make complex, expensive and disruptive changes to their houses. Interested uh, to hear about how your Green Star Renovation Guide might assist with that task. Um, But then also, and I think we've talked, we do talk a lot about the the downside of that, you know, that that is a challenging task. It's not going to be an easy one, but it also brings with it some opportunities as well. So keen to see whether you see opportunities in that move forward too. Absolutely. And I do think with existing homes, we absolutely need to be looking at both the challenge and the opportunity. And also we need to meet people where they are. Yes. So... You know, when, when I talk about renovations, people often say, you know, how do you renovate a home? But a lot of it starts with where are you? 
you know, where are you in your home's journey? If you're doing a kitchen anyway as one mm. of a one in 15 to 25 year cycle in your home, what a great time to upgrade your appliances. What a great time to, you know, get the latest in, um, you know, induction cooking, all those fabulous opportunities. But you might just be in your house and be a little bit uncomfortable and, mm. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that you do in any home, you know. You should be looking at insulation right now, what what you can do to make your taps and toilets more efficient, what you can be doing with, you know, LED lightings. Pretty comfortable these days and in a, in a hot climate you don't want to be loading these things in. So there's, there's a bunch of what I would call the obvious that we need yeah. to be slowly helping everyone on a journey to put in and then be working with people at different stages of their journey. You know, are you ripping your bathroom out? And then also to acknowledge that at the moment we're still building, um, you know, knowledge in trades. We're still, you know, there, there, there's a gap here. So when people say what's the best policy decision we can do on retrofits, mm-hmm. I say upgrade the code for new yeah. builds. Why do I say that? You know, your hot water system goes bang. The tradesperson comes out and goes, here's this unit. I can do it like for like, or the new standards say we should all be doing this. What do you want to do? Yeah. And so it lifts the bar and changes the expectation. And, you know, we need to look at these things. Yes, it is a big deal to change all these things across homes, but next time your hot water system goes bang, make a choice for better. And what we're seeing is um, a lot of the partners we're working with at the big end of town start to make far more available for everyday Australians. And that's when we know we've made it. When you walk into, you know, so what inspires me is 20 years ago, the Green Building Council got low toxin paints that were really hard, they were really expensive. We required them in our standard and they were very hard to get. Mm-hmm. They're now sold in every paint shop that you walk into and it's very hard not to get them. That's what transformation looks like and that's why we've all got to lean in better for residential because people say to me, can't people do their own research on climate resilience? And I would say there's only in the same way people can do their own research on seatbelts. Can't be a PhD in everything It's up to those of us who spend their time in property to take the complexity out of some of this and make it more available to people when they want better for themselves, their family, their community, and ultimately the planet. What's Next is brought to you by Energy Consumers Australia, the national voice for energy consumers. Thanks to Davina Rooney from the Green Building Council of Australia for joining us for this episode. The interview was conducted by Energy Consumers Australia's Kerry Connors. Production and editing was by the team at Lawson Media. If you're interested in contacting the show, please send us an email at podcast at energyconsumersaustralia.com.au. I'll also put some interesting and informative resources in the episode's show notes. I'm Phil Bourne and I'll speak to you next time.